welcome back to the final episode of Amala Tierra this year. And right before summer ended, I caught up with one half of Groove Armada, DJ turned farmer, Andy Cato, who was in Ibiza to play one of the closing parties on the island. Andy has a pretty inspiring story as to how he came to develop Wild Farmed, which is an innovative system for growing grains in a permanent pasture ecosystem. The focus is on quality, rather than quantity, one that makes sense economically as well as ecologically. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the Amalatiera podcast, Overlooking Dolphila. It's lovely to be here, nice breeze blowing, hopefully not too much breeze to the microphone. Fingers crossed. It's very interesting to hear about perhaps um, the steep trajectory, I guess, after selling your publishing rights and, and going straight into the deep end of kind of taking up farming full time in France. Yeah, I mean, that's a very, very long story. But as, as you say, I mean, I was a, I was someone who, other than kind of occasionally buying organic food because I'd read a couple of articles about pesticides, but beyond that, didn't really think about where my food came from until I read this article on the way back from a gig that talked about, um, call it, say, industrial food production, whatever you want to call it, but how we grow most of our food today and its environmental consequences and health consequences and so on, that had this line in it, if you don't like the system, don't depend on it. And that was my sort of call to arms. So, you know, quite late in life, I planted my first seeds and and just tried to start growing my own food, really. Um, And from there, from the first moment, I saw these seeds become plants, this sort of miraculous process. Um, I was just transfixed. Uh, And that led to uh, what can only be described as a spectacularly sized rabbit hole, um, where the vegetable patch became a market garden. And then, as you say, I took the decision to sell my publishing rights and uh, and buy a farm or, you know, finance the purchase of a farm, to be more accurate. Uh, in France, where we were living, um, and uh, and then everything went absolutely spectacularly wrong. <laughs> I mean, apart from the part where it went spectacularly wrong, I mean, what was the effect of going from DJing to, to farming on your nervous system? Well, I mean, it, it, there were pros and cons of the fact that the two uh, were happening and continue to happen to a degree at the same time. I mean, the um, on the one hand, you're, you're, you're caught between two, two very different worlds, obviously, on all sorts of levels, you know, uh, uh, in time scales, for example. So, you know, if you're working in a studio or, um, uh, you know, sort of op- operating in the digital domain in, in, in creatively, whatever you're doing, really, you go from a world where it's sort of 0.0005 second Google searches to a world where you're inevitably working with the seasons, where every experiment that you want to try takes a year. From, from seed to, to harvest. And you go from a lot of hubris to a lot of humility when you start to realize our absolute dependence on these extraordinary um, uh, symbiotic relationships that the natural world is, is built on. So um, th- the pros of, of having a foot in both camps, I suppose, is because it gives me uh, interesting perspectives in both areas, but also it allowed me to not go under when everything was going wrong and I could bail myself out. And it was hard because I was I'd finish work at 5am on the weekends and start work at 5am on Monday, but, but at least I could do it, you know, and that's not an option that a lot of farmers faced with difficult circumstances uh, have got. That's not a small decision, though, to sell the publishing rights that presumably would have brought you royalties for the, for the rest of your days. Well, that's a musician's pension, so it was an absolutely mad um, decision, hopelessly naive in retrospect. Uh, and very, very humbling when it all went wrong. And there were some, some really, really dark days, I mean, really dark days, um, when you know, sort of, it, was, it, it was running out of money. Even though I was bailing myself out every weekend, there's a lot of zeros on farming checks. Um, 
And so I was running out of money. I wasn't seeing the kids very much. I was just absolutely exhausted. Nothing was working. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, that early period at the farm was, was without question the toughest period of my life. I mean, you kind of like when you did buy the farm and, and then you obviously found out that the land was, you know, being used for the monoculture of maize and, and obviously it was really no good to anybody in, in its current state. I mean, that's a pretty major thing for you to have to learn very, very quickly about, you know, putting animals out to pasture. And um, can you tell us a little bit about that, obviously, regenerative journey? Yeah, I mean, due diligence would have suggested doing a soil test before my farm, <laughs> So I was, Minor detail. I was definitely guilty of, uh, you know, enthusiasm, clouding judgment or confirmation bias, whatever you want to call it. But, um, but you know, the farm wasn't that unique in that a lot of the soils on which we grow our food are in a, are in a poor state. Uh, and they've been sort of knocked about mechanically and chemically for, for a very long time. <clears throat> and when you, when you remove um, that kind of intravenous drip, uh, the, the state of dysfunction is revealed uh, and that's what happened to me because I, I thought I was just going to swan in and start farming organically you know but without uh, but what I did was uh, removed the chemicals without having a holistic plan as to how to do it another way and I would got there on the vegetable patch but I was overwhelmed by the scale how to apply those principles at scale you know and so uh, so after the dark days there was this there was this moment uh, in a, in a second hand bookshop I was actually looking for an Enid Blyton book for my daughter came across this book by Albert Howard called An Agricultural Testament and um, he was part of an amazing pre-World War II cohort people like Lady Balfour Newman Turner uh, and uh, and they sort of um, had already seen the direction of travel from the way that we were starting to do things with artificial inputs and so on and um, and they basically are the people who led to the foundation of the of the modern organic movement but we shouldn't forget e- either that they were all effectively just mining indigenous wisdom you know and a lot of regenerative farming today is indigenous wisdom with gps <laughs> i love the little video that i saw of you uh giving a talk at groundswell and you and you had your little gps system on the the, the tilling that you were doing with horses yeah, so I mean, it's, it's, it was a long and winding road. So from, from, from the moment that I got that Albert Howard book, I was at the point of having to sell the farm and give up. Um, and, um, and I was inspired by his basic message is that nature works through diversity. And you just kind of look around you to, 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 re, to realize the truth of that. You know, so yeah, nature works by having a diversity of plants and animals in the same place at the same time. And, and when we separate all those out, we take all this beautiful solution and create loads of problems. I mean, that's the kind of speed read. That, that's what, how they phrase it in the week if they're reviewing it um, but um, and so from him I got uh, um, very inspired but also introduced to all the people that he'd inspired and so it opened up this whole new world to me uh, and I started trying to apply some of these principles which again is not straightforward but uh, involved lots of different things kind of how we can do the sort of vegetable patch principle of mulching but at a field scale introduction of livestock as you said which for a 25 year vegetarian at the time was a big step <laughs> Uh, and um, and the power of sort of diverse pastures and yeah basically just trying to pull it all together into into a cohesive whole but that didn't happen overnight as you can imagine I love the the story about the the guy from Switzerland who was um, obviously taken on a chunk of land of burnt out Amazonian previous rainforest and he, and he helped you with the agroforestry a- angle yeah he's an absolutely amazing man so yeah, I, actually just go back to your previous question so as part of this sort of fairly mad decade of, of uh, research and development effectively 
for a while we farmed with horses, including using the GPS iPad that you, you saw. But the, the reasons for that were purely practical. Um, it was to be lighter on the land as this soil was sort of healing, coming back to life a little bit. Um, every time you drove on it, even if you farmed in a way to really reduce the number of passengers on the land, it doesn't take long actually to kind of drive everywhere pretty much. I mean, there are ways around it I didn't know about then, which I know now, things called very boringly called controlled traffic but it is what it says on the tin you know you just only ever drive on one spot and all this sort of thing but as I was learning I was just trying to be lighter on the on the soil and um, you can actually cover a lot of ground with uh, with horses but it was when that was going for a while and um, we started then um, uh, things were working a little bit better so we started replanting all the hedges that had been ripped up replanting all the trees I came across the chap you mentioned Ernst Gotch who's an absolutely extraordinary man who as you said um, but the, why he bought the Burnout Amazon was interesting because he was a very successful plant breeder working for a European uh, plant breeding company, can't remember which one. But eventually he just had this sort of uh, uh, epiphany where he thought, I'm actually developing uh, varieties of plants that can survive as monocultures in these very foreign environments. They shouldn't be, like if it's luzerne or wheat or barley or whatever, those plants are not expecting to be uh, side by side with millions and millions and millions of others of the same species and variety mm-hmm. uh, for as far as the eye can see and then they suddenly realized that what he needed to do was create an environment in which plants could thrive just do it the other way around mm-hmm. uh, but of course um, there's lots of money in one and not so much money in the other so he got fired and went and instead bought this um, section of forest started planting trees this is about 40 years ago I think and now you look at his farm from the air and it just looks like a restored forest. It's of such a scale that it, it, it generates its own rainfall. He has this real thing about how um, there isn't such thing as that droughts are man-made uh, because you've got this, again, symbiotic relationship between vegetation and rain and so on. Certainly that's what he's seen in action at his place. Um, but yeah, he calls it syntropic uh, agriculture and there's a Greek origin of the word syntropic that I can't quite remember. But, it's, um, but yeah, look him up. He's an amazing man. Very interesting you bring that up actually that's what Daniel Christian Wilde the author of Designing Regenerative Cultures said is that you know obviously Ibiza has a permanent water problem but he was like you can just plant rain you know there's no need for it to be raining out at sea all the time and for us not to be benefiting. I think in terms of the fact that you're now living back in England and you've created this wild farmed concept to create these grains and I think very interesting perhaps to hear more about one of the things I was reading the fact that it's all about quality not quantity and I think also giving this idea that perhaps locally grown zero kilometer food that obviously respects the soil and goes through regenerative processes isn't necessarily like outrageously expensive like it is in Ibiza because actually I think a lot of the people that want to eat that kind of food maybe can't actually afford to. Yeah well with Wild Farmed we we had to choose our compromises because um, we set that up uh, in the belief that we've got a very little ecological road left uh, that we have to have a, a massive and mainstream transformation of the way that we, we grow food and that crucially um, the food from these systems has to be available to everyone as you were saying. So, so we called the internal phrase for wild farm is the long road to Greg's and actually last week we finally got a deal with Greg's so we're, <laughs> we're getting somewhere but uh, on the basis that you know you need to be in those places if you're going to make change I think uh, a scale uh, to make a difference. That doesn't mean that what I was doing in France which was much more a field to play community based around a well, small town the more of that there is the better but the reality is that most people live in, in cities or towns um, and 80% of people in the UK at least buy food in supermarkets so whilst you can uh, wish to change that 
and you can wish to change land distribution and all the million other injustices all the way up the food chain, we are where we are on that front. So, so someone else can take that on then, great. But in the meantime, we just haven't got time to think, well, if people are buying supermarkets, there's nothing we can do. We just haven't got time to do that. So our whole mission was to, to find a way just to kind of make it work. Um, and it's not straightforward to make it work because the true cost of food, which I'm, I'm sure is something that you've, you've discussed before, but um, is nothing to do with the, with the shelf price. So, you know, Henry Dimbleby, who wrote this kind of exhaustive but actually quite easy reading national food strategy, from a UK perspective, he estimated, estimates that 70 billion pounds worth of costs from the way we grow food, from water pollution to uh, the NHS to environmental degradation every year, 70 billion pounds every year is, is externalized is the word, which basically means it's not on the spreadsheet. But of course, ultimately we're all paying those bills and every future generation will have a more and more extreme bill to pay. So uh, it's not easy operating in a world where the true cost of food is, isn't recognized. You know, when, when I sold, sold grains for the first time at the French farm, I was really struck by the fact that the only measure in our food system as it stands is weight. So, you know, not how many insects you killed or how many waterways you polluted or, or anything to do with nutrition, just how many tons you've got. And that is, it's an odd way to construct a food system, really. Wow, it's an economy, GDP thing. And yeah, that's exactly what Helen Norberg Hodge talks about. A lot of the time, it's not, the two things are not relative. Our last guest was talking about glyphosate and its use and, you know, the fact that this is basically causing like worldwide um, cancer and, and there's a lot of issues um, going there. And I think it's really amazing that you have gone down this, you know, very regenerative route right from the get go. Well, I mean, regenerative is a difficult word because anyone can use it and everyone is. And, and, and actually, in the vast majority of cases, um, regenerative uh, is used to refer to a, a reduction in inputs. So, you know, you used X amount of insecticide over five years, you agree to use 40% less, and that gets tagged with the word regenerative. In my mind, that isn't, hasn't got a lot to do with the original intention of the word. You know, you're not actually regenerating anything. You might be making things a bit less bad, which, you know, why not? But it's, uh, uh, to me, that's not what the intention of it was. And so we, we felt the need um, actually to, to, to write some wild farm standards so that all of our growers have this third party order to set protocols to build trust. Because if you're asking, you know, very um, complicated uh, big businesses to pay a little bit more money for their ingredients because uh, of all the massive impact they can have in allowing farmers and supporting farmers to move from A to B. Mm go from a kind of ecological desert to something which is which is full of life then there has to be trust there that you're doing what you say you're doing and regenerative is becoming a word that's so loose it's a, a bit like kind of natural and uh, and healthy mm. but within all of that there are really difficult decisions you know so uh, I, I totally get the glyphosate thing and, I, and I've read all the research papers on it and we're actually doing some of our own research on it but it's not enough to say we must not use glyphosate unless you can go out to farmers who are actually at the sharp end of trying to make things work year on year and say and here's what we can do instead and we'll help you do it and we'll give you a fixed price and we'll try and de-risk when you transition all of these practices and shed these massive cultural burdens of what success looks like you know you just mustn't underestimate that farmers like you know nurses and doctors and teachers and anyone important in society have been squeezed to the absolute brink and it's not their fault where we're at and it's not up to them to be these kind of wizards to turn the whole thing around we've got to we've got to help them 
and work together on this. And uh, and so yeah, if you want to say don't do something, I think it's very important to be able to say. And what you can do is this. What research are you doing? Well, basically, when you, when you look into the the, the, the glyphosate, um, and, and I'm not yeah, I'm sure Zach Bush talked about this. I didn't finish him. So and he's the expert on all this. But basically, there's a fairly clear link, as far as I'm concerned, um, between uh, increased glyphosate use and health consequences. But actually, the vast majority of the research papers that I could find on that, anyway, um, are around around um, sort of corn and soybean systems in the U.S. Using these GM seeds, they call they call them Roundup, which is another word for glyphosate. It's a Roundup ready, so they they can tolerate applications of glyphosate, and so you just keep applying it to the field, and it kills everything else apart from the crop. Uh, and those applications are heavy and repeated, uh, and a lot of the the um, the papers that then follow that into the water supply, into the rain, into increased cancer rates and so on and so forth are based around those systems. But when you go and speak to a farmer in the UK about um, uh, about the use of glyphosate, some people are doing uh, what I think shouldn't be allowed, which is to use it to kill the crop before harvest. They call it desiccation. So the last thing before it goes into food supply is actually sprayed off with glyphosate to make harvesting easier. Uh, I just I can't get my head around that. But, but a lot of them will say, well, I'm going to plant a cover crop, which is basically uh, plants to protect the soil over winter if you're planting a spring crop. When it comes to spring, you've got a choice. Uh, and you can either uh, kill off that spring crop by cultivating, or you could kill it off by spraying it, and you haven't got to touch the soil at all, and you can drill straight into it. Now, in that specific context, after you've done that, there'll be no further use of glyphosate, so it won't go on the growing crop whatsoever. So in that specific situation, the soil doesn't like being tilled either. So which is worse? Uh, is it tillage or is it glyphosate? And when you ask that question of all the people who best informed to know, they didn't know, seem to know the answer. So we've commissioned some research into that specific question. But for the moment, none of our growers use any of it. But I don't think you, we have to avoid dogma. You know, there's such the challenges that we're facing that we've got to go into this in an open fashion and, and um, uh, and, and just try and remain flexible as as, as things emerge, because you know we we understand a fraction of what's happening in the, in the soil universe, uh, and it's going to be we're probably going to be on Mars before we've got much of an idea how it works. Uh, it's very true. I think it's interesting to acknowledge that yeah, you can't just take something out of the equation that clearly is there for a reason, but ultimately as you say it's a quality not quantity thing but that's not realistic if you need to make a living from it and you know i have so much respect for any farmer on this island i don't think it's an easy island to farm on and i think yeah trying to survive on just farming alone is like not really something that i don't think any farmer is really doing in ibiza right now no it's incredibly tough and that's you know that's a reflection of the um, you know the inevitable consequence of this sort of get big or get out as the in the famous words of the u.s secretary of state for agriculture in the 70s you know and this massive drive to production slightly linked to the sort of push for wartime optimization of output all this kind of coalesced in this explosion of chemical-based agriculture which we call the green revolution and um and of course what happened as a result is that the amount of um, produce went up exponentially but as a result of that, inevitably the price crashes. It has to, you know. And ironically, that put out of business a lot of uh, medium-sized farmers uh, uh, across Africa and across Asia, across huge, huge, huge swathes of land. And as a result, created massive food inse- insecurity. Actually, so this whole notion that it's sort of feeding the world is, is it, you just need to dig a lot deeper than that because things are not as they seem on that on that feeding the feeding the world point. So, where are you getting your seeds from? 
Well, we use all kinds of different varieties. One of the challenges that you face, whatever you're growing, uh, is that most varieties have been developed for chemically-based systems, and they're, they're pretty hopeless when you put them into uh, systems where they have to actually kind of fight for themselves a little bit and, and work in a more natural setting. And, um, and so uh, we're using all kinds of different varieties. Some of them are very old. Uh, there are actually some brilliant um, plant breeders, mainly in Austria for some reason, who are, who are really now concentrating on cereal varieties that have these traits of being able to engage in, uh, in um, and sort of thrive in a more natural setting. So we use a mixture of old and new varieties. The key for us is not really what year it's from or whether it's got a lovely old kind of romantic name. It's about can this variety work in a farming system uh, based on natural soil biology rather than artificial chemistry. And I mean, how are you kind of finding the, the transition from the French farming world back into, you know, where you were born and bred? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, cultural f familiarity is a nice thing in lots of ways, but it's, it's um, I'm so, so glad in retrospect that I had that experience in France because I now realise that that is a, an agricultural world which sort of disappeared from England in the 50s. Um, and um, that there's small farms generally using still all the original buildings. Um, and, and it's just kind of like bailing to an agriculture. You just make things work. You find solutions. You do everything yourself. Um, and so that was a really great education. And so it's nice, you know, when you're speaking to other people or now at the farm, um, we've got some people, brilliant uh, uh, farmer um, working with me uh, because I'm having to do all the wild farm stuff. But it's, it's nice when you don't have to ask someone to do a job that you haven't done yourself. Uh, and because of the way it was in France, uh, I went through through everything, you know. So uh, that was a real privilege to be part of a, a type of farming community, you know, where uh, it's. I just d d don't think it's going to be long of this earth. Well, I saw it in certain Europe anyway, you know, where everyone's got a few chickens and a pig and a couple of cows. <laughs> it's a it's a vanishing world. And in terms of like working with the National Trust, what's that's been like? Well, I mean, I take my hat off to them because a lot of people wanted to, to rent the farm where I'm now a tenant and they gave it to me. So I can't really complain uh, on that level. And actually, we're working with them very closely because they want their their arable land, you know, because their charitable mission is to you know, look after the environment, basically. So they want the arable land to be a little bit different to what it is, a lot of it is today. And so we're, we're working with them to see how we can, we can help with that. And, um, you know, any big organization has its foibles. Uh, and, and it's not going to be perfect, but uh, they're just so clearly a force for good, uh, and they're a force for good facing huge obstacles. I mean, you imagine just like looking after one old farmhouse and a few fences, never mind doing that across millions of acres. You know, it's insane what they're up against, and COVID was brutal, you know, in terms of their, their revenues, like it was for everyone else. So they're, they're trying to do a very difficult thing, and I think they do it, they do it really well. Thank you, Andy, so much um, for joining us here on Amalatiera. Absolute pleasure to be here, and I hope the, uh, the breeze isn't too much of a disruption for your high-quality microphone. gazing over the mountains of San Juan, uh, nestled in the Black Nose Wine Chiringuito for the second interview in today's episode. And I'm here with the uh, co-founder of the wine label, Mr. Peter Lena. 
you are welcome, Joe. Nice to see you again. Um, we have now a fantastic uh, winter weather, but we expect some rain hopefully in the next few days as we have now brought out a lot of compost in the whole finca, in the vineyard, in the olive grove. And we await to the rain to be announced so that we can put some seeds in the soil to cover the soil and then uh, make a mulching and, you know, basically preserve the water and the humidity in the soil uh, for the next season. It sounds like, you know, a pretty brave way to kind of embark on a winemaking process. Not only have you, you know, had no previous experience necessarily um, before coming to Ibiza of making wine, but to, you know, decide to actually make a biodynamic wine. Like where did that desire or, uh, you know, initial process begin? Actually, it's um, a logical evolution, I think, for us uh, having started with organic since the beginning. And we wanted to go a step further um, because indeed the soil up here uh, needed a lot of attention. And um, so when we digged a bit further into different uh, possibilities, uh, a couple of years ago I started to look uh, deeper into the biodynamic way of making agriculture. And so we started to apply the principles of those uh, back in 2020, 21, and since 2022, uh, all the products from the farm, like the grapes and the olives, are Demeter certified, so biodynamic. The fact is that the end product, so the olive oil and the wines, are not certified yet because we subtreat the elaboration of the oil and the wine with third parties and those have not yet uh, made the certification uh, process. And how does that, you know, how does that feel? Everything is about the project management. So we will do um, our next project, obviously, is to find a solution to have our own uh, bodega, at least, so that we can really um, control every step of the winemaking from agriculture uh, until the, the end product, so the bottled wine. With the olives, I think it, we can probably find a solution with the mill where we treat today uh, our olives or where we press uh, our olives. Uh, so it's an administrative hassle that we need to complete with them. And I know for them also it's not really a funny thing to do because it's lot of uh, lots of questions you need to answer, but it's not that complicated. And as this mill also is working along um, organic uh, procedures already, it will not be a, a huge amount of additional work for them. It's just really some administrative uh, things and they need to respect a few, a few uh, things uh, so that we can then um, finally put the, the Demeter uh, stamp on our, on our label, which I think is giving the people who consume biodynamic products or are looking for them, this gives them the additional confidence they need for that. Apart from the administrative challenges that you faced, I mean, I'm quite intrigued to hear, you know, what are the biggest challenges you physically faced on the land or maybe through the seasons or what are the biggest lessons you've learned through this process uh, in, in this particular terrain, which is quite unique, really, particularly as you've actually managed to regenerate it from, you know, some destitute times from, from when you first took it over. Yes, it was a, it was a lot, lot of work and uh, we are not done. I think it's really a constant... Um, a constant process um, and where you focus uh, obviously on the health of the soil that's the, the most important thing but also the plants and that means that you have to be permanently watching them uh, and be flexible um, and also adapt and listen to other people's experiences so that we can improve uh, our way of, uh, of working um, 
the, the thing is also that we still use some uh, old school machines like tractor. <laughs> and that's maybe also something over time uh, that we would like to, to work on uh, is to find alternative solutions like horse traction, for example. Um, but uh, again, it's uh, everything we, we, we change. We need to, first of all, uh, test it to see how it works up here. Also, if the horses feel uh, comfortable, you know, to work in, a, on a, in our vineyard, for example. So we are working on that. Um, and obviously, agriculture is also has a lot to do with people. And I'm really happy with uh, uh, Tony here, who is giving me uh, uh, more than a hand since over a year. Uh, he's really running the, the viticultural activities here. And I'm really pleased that uh, he's so much implicated. We have the same age, so probably we understand each other a bit easier. Uh, and uh, he's a hard worker, very connected with the land. And uh, also enough open-minded, uh, because that's not always easy to find people who are, you know, uh, with a certain age, and then you start talking to them about the biodynamic principles like uh, utilizing horn manure or stuff like that, which sounds a bit weird to some people, but when you see the effects it has uh, on the land, like um, uh, this horn manure, for example, is stimulating the, the activity on the soil. For example, if you bring out compost, it can really initiate the, the or let's say uh, push the activity of the compost in the soil, so to, to push the the microorganisms, uh, the mycorrhiza also under, underneath the, the plants, the connection of everything. And that's, um, that's also one of the qualities that Tony has, is to be enough open-minded. And today, when we make the plan, he can apply uh, alone, you know, these, these products and he does it really well. So what do, what do you think the difference in taste is when you, when you create wine biodynamically? To be really honest, I think it's very difficult to make a difference um, of that. But I think over time, um, yes, there will be a difference. It's a more a kind of, uh, uh, in the sense that you don't utilize yeast, for example, to initiate the fermentation process when you have biodynamic wine. Uh, that means that with you know some yeasts, they have their own taste, and you want to put that taste into your wine when you utilize those type of yeasts. So if you have only the ambient yeast, so the ones that are on the grapes uh, that initiate the fermentation process, uh, that means indeed you then have only the taste of your own grapes uh, in your wine and their evolution process during fermentation, aging and so forth. Um, so we will have to... Uh, maybe once when we really have time and a lot of grapes, we could maybe once make a test uh, so to really determine whether we can smell a, a difference or taste a difference between um, a wine that is made with uh, added yeast uh, and one that is uh, made uh, and has, uh, you know, uh, fermented from its own uh, yeast, from the ambient yeast. Why, why is it so important to you to make wine in this way? Where did this idea come from, all this desire? Yeah, it has basically to do... Um, it's, you know, it's the, the traditional way of making wine. Um, I mean, one, one can say, uh, because the, it's a kind of low-intervention uh, type of product that you want to do, so it starts with the agriculture, um, and it should go uh, until the product obviously you still need a bottle to drink the wine uh, of course you could basically in theory 
drink, drink it directly from the barrel, <laughs> but you, you still need to, to do some things, um, some steps to, to bring the product to the market. But during the, the process, so from agriculture to bottling, um, I think the idea is indeed to have less and less intervention and to make, make the to let the nature um, uh, contribute as much as possible to the to the end product. That means also that you have to accept that uh, every year is different, and uh, that also then the um, the every product or every wine at the end of the day is expressing also the um, uh, the 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 weather phenomenon that we could have, the, the dryness or not, or lots of rain and so forth, uh, the amount of sun we get and so forth, the pressure we might have, you know, on fungus and stuff like that. Uh, all this is then expressed uh, at the end of the day in the, in the, in the wine you drink. Um, and that's, uh, we are ready to do that. So to basically have a, a wine that each year might be a little bit different. Obviously we have the same varieties. So the bottom line is still the same. Uh, but you might have a bit more of this, a bit less of that. Um, but the idea is indeed to that you let the, the nature uh, do do its job, and I think that's the best expression of your terroir um, is to have a wine uh, with as much as as little as possible intervention. Mm. I mean, we had the pleasure of uh, hosting some of those bottles at our launch party back in June, which feels like a very long time ago. I can't believe this is the sixth episode uh, of Amala Tierra, but it was incredible to, to have those bottles in the mix and they were absolutely delicious, but it was a slightly different label, and um, which I absolutely love, this kind of local crazy dog brand that you've brought out. Tell us about the Padenka Loco. Yes, as you know, uh, so far we always had black nose. Um, and indeed, for with the 2020, so three years ago, vintage, uh, we decided to make another uh, brand to create a, a new brand, uh, more linked also to the island, these local dogs, the Podenko. And uh, as Podenko alone was maybe a bit too simplistic, so we decided to make it crazy, and that's why it's called Podenko Loco. So it's a Podenko that um, is in a straight jacket, <laughs> it's really crazy. And yes, so that was a bit uh, uh, an original touch we wanted to give to the wine and also to respond to some of the people who who thought that black nose is not enough if it's anchored, even if everything in it is from here. Um, and I must say, <laughs> it is, uh, it is uh, well, um, uh, I mean, we have almost sold uh, most of the stock now. It, run, uh, it, ran, it re was received very well by the, by the restaurants and the consumers, and uh, there is still uh, some of it available for, for sale. I think it's going to make a perfect festive tipple. Um, so we'll put a little link to that in the episode show notes if anyone wants to check it out. And, you know, obviously, uh, going back to the black nose, the, the 2023 is not too far away from production. Talk us through that process and, and, and what actually kind of went into that in terms of labour for the, the fruits of your labour. Yes, uh, the 2023 is really an interesting uh, vintage for us because it's also the first time uh, we could harvest some of our white wine variety uh, Giroros here in uh, San Juan and also uh, quite a decent quantity of Chardonnay uh, from uh, our vineyard which I call Las Tres, Tres Hermanas uh, which is in uh, Santa Ines. So we'll have the first white wine uh, next year. Uh, probably we'll be ready for the season next year. And we also made some rosé uh, the first time from grapes from up here with uh, Monastrel and Sira, 
um, and obviously our traditional uh, red wine blend um, from Monastrel, Sira and Cabernet Sauvignon. So it was quite really a good harvest. I think we will have a decent quantity of bottles available and um, it was uh, not an easy year. Uh, it was a very dry year but the quality of the grapes was really uh, amazing and I think uh, yeah, we, are, we look forward to the evolution of those wines in the next uh, couple of months. Um, but uh, I think we can already say that uh, the white wine will be something really original. It's a blend between a variety from Mallorca called Giro Ross and uh, Chardonnay. So it will be a, a nice, a nice original blend. Mm. I mean, apart from the very obvious difference in colour of the grapes, like what's the difference in process of making that from white to red to rosé? Ah, yes. So the, the white wine is obviously more work. Um, it's more, it's more technical in the sense that you need to cool down the the, the grapes. So first of all, you press them directly uh, when you harvest them, um, and then um, otherwise, you if you leave it on the skin, you will then make an orange wine. If you leave the the, the white grapes on the skin for a few weeks or months, uh, then you have the the color of the skin that is transmitted to the wine, and that's how you make these orange wines, which are really famous and really nice. Uh, so the white wine, you press it directly uh, and then you cool it down. Um, and so you need to have the infrastructure to do so and not just cool it to 18 degrees. You really need to go low to maybe a 10, uh, even below 10 degrees. And then what we did, uh, we have um, uh, after the fermentation process, we have um, bought uh, um, a new uh, French biodynamic oak barrel uh, where we put half of the white wine uh, into it uh, for, for aging and the other half is in big tamajuanas, so 50 liters uh, glass bottles or glass jars and uh, we will now see in January, February how this uh, evolves on, in each uh, recipient but most likely we are going to blend all this together and then bottle it probably in March, April so to be ready for, for the summer season with uh, with this product. I don't know yet exactly the name it will have. That will be a surprise for next year. Um, but I'm sure it will be a really a, a nice a nice product. So we're going to be anticipating the uh, the, the new label and the uh, design of this new white wine, which I think it's really lovely that you're going to have that ready for the summertime. I'm definitely more of a white wine and a rosé drinker in the summer uh, months. But um, in terms of the 2021 vintage, that's kind of ready now for Christmas? Yes, that is uh, ready. It is bottled uh, and uh, ready for sale. It's, uh, it will be again Black Nose 2021. And in parallel, we also sell the Podenco Loco. So uh, both, uh, both uh, brands uh, are uh, ready for sale for the, for the season. I think it's just so amazing, really, that you've just kind of created this magic little wine paradise on the top of the hill in San Juan. I mean, obviously, you've regenerated this land and there was a huge fire up here back in the day. I mean, how difficult was it to kind of bring it back from the dead wasteland? Yeah, it's still an ongoing process. The, the land is still uh, poor. Uh, we need to, every year, you know, to add compost, uh, to give it more energy, uh, put a lot of uh, seeds uh, in the soil so that we can uh, uh, create, um, uh, I mean, green manure, you know, so to have this uh, soil covered, uh, so to avoid uh, the erosion and the retention of, of the water. So that is a process that is not finished. But we can see the results in some parts this year, for example, we didn't need to 
to add additional seeds in uh, in a big part of our olive grove because uh, over the last yeah 10 years we have now worked a lot uh, with this uh, soil cover and there uh, probably the soil was less um, it was it, it, the terraces were cleaned even before the fire in 2011 there or maintained clean if you want and so the soil was uh, a bit more had a bit more energy um, and uh, so there the, the soil cover is growing much better but it's an ongoing process we are not yet at the end of the road but it's yes, it's uh, it's a lot it's a lot of work, but it's really nice to see the results. Probably when you come back after the rain, uh, two three weeks after the rain, you will see that here everything will be really nice and green again. And we also reclaimed, for example, in eastern part of our property, we reclaimed uh, about uh, a hectare of land from forest um, so to reclaim it as agricultural land and there we planted uh, this uh, winter uh, about 80 more olive trees uh, the same species we have elsewhere which is uh, arbequina and coronaki that is an, an ongoing process but we will not have much more land to readily reclaim up here because we also want to maintain a, a large biodiversity and maintain some forest and uh, garig you know where the plants can grow on their own without any intervention from us so that uh, the wildlife also has its uh, corridors and we don't interrupt those um, but I think, uh, yes, these walls that were built, uh, or terraces that were built uh, and withheld with these dry stone walls uh, were built uh, hundreds of years ago, and I think it's only respectful towards those who built them uh, that we uh, reclaim those terraces uh, and uh, work on them and not just let the pine trees uh, invade uh, everything. Uh, because that's also a problematic. It's also a kind of monoculture uh, if you have only pine trees uh, uh, there. And so I think also the firefighters are happy <laughs> when they see that every terrace we, we cultivate is for them like a fire barrier. Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, that's also uh, a kind of collateral benefit, if I may say, uh, of our activities. What would your dream be in the next, say, five years? What would you like to, you know, obviously this Chiringuito wasn't here the last time I came, which has been created from wood from the farm, from the Sabinas, and it's all natural produce that's actually come from the land. Like, what else is in the pipeline? Yeah, I think the next thing is indeed to, to make a project for our uh, own bodega somewhere. I don't know yet where we can do it, uh, but this is ongoing. Um, and yes, I would like to say that that would be a dream uh, if in the next three, four, five years we have our own uh, bodega so that we can really produce our own product and also welcome the visitors in a, in a, in a complete winemaking environment, not just in the vineyard. Um, because that's a little bit uh, missing sometimes when you have uh, visitors. Uh, we can show them obviously our little experimental uh, bodega, uh, but for really for you know the, the wine enthusiasts, it's really important that you can also show them uh, your uh, your cellar and uh, with the barrels and so forth, uh, so that they can uh, taste maybe also some of the wines directly from the barrels, which today we cannot do. Mm -hmm. So for the Öno tourism. Uh, I think this will also be something that will benefit uh, also uh, the Ayuntamiento of San Juan because today in this Ayuntamiento there is not yet any bodega uh, and uh, hopefully also they will help us to, to get, uh, to get uh, this dream realized. Wow, look at that. Wishing for uh, 
<laughs> new projects before Christmas. So exciting and so beautiful to be back here gazing over this um, stunningly gorgeous land that you've uh, regenerated and, and rebirthed. Um, the wine that we've just been talking about is in our episode show notes. There's some links to that as well. Peter, thank you so much for inviting us back here again. It's a great pleasure, Joe, to see you. Now the vineyard is in uh, winter mode, so um, it will be, uh, I think we will leave it in peace until January, uh, when we will do then um, the pruning uh, of, uh, of the wines, so to prepare them for the, the next season, and hope to see you next year then. Well, maybe I'll pop back for n- and do some pruning for you. <laughs> With pleasure. Podcast pruning. <laughs> yes, we can do that. Clack, clack, clack. <laughs> Our final conversation on today's episode is with two women who form part of a collective of 12 female activists who share a sensibility to the beauty of Earth's flora and a concern for the potential loss of species. They wish to creatively explore interactions between the various forms of life, raise awareness about endangered species and propose new practices. And today we are near Benaras in Ibiza to discuss the reason they formed as a response to a new crisis regarding the prickly pear cactus. I'm joined by... Eliana Pedinat and Liz Kenicky. Ladies, thank you so much for inviting me into your beautiful garden here, perched on top of a stunning mountain in the north of Ibiza. Thank you very much, Joe. We're really happy to be here. Indeed. Thanks so much for coming. <laughs> well, we had an adventure. It was a bit like Wacky Races, um, trying to get up here, um, which, I, which I thoroughly enjoyed, feeling like Penelope Pitstop. Uh, tell us a little bit about the inspiration, obviously in terms of the name, because it's you know a kind of conglomeration of, of the two species intertwined. Yes. Well, the name uh, SOS, S-O-S, Cochichumbas, um, comes because we we were very sad to see that the chumberas, the prickly pear cactus that we have here behind, all over the island of Ibiza was dying. And then we realized it was because of this cochinilla, uh, the cochinil in English, this white little powder insect that is sucking their uh, salvia no, and, and killing them. So we were looking for a name that would... Uh, talk about both the plant and the and the insect because we are addressing this imbalance, and also it's interesting because the this insect um, gives a, a dye, so we wanted to include it in this action of raising awareness of this problem, maybe also using the dye in, in some artistic actions. Mm. So at the end we call it sos cochichumbas. And um, now we have a slogan, like a bit uh, Mexican, which is, Que vivan las chumberas. Yoo-hoo! <laughs> because they're originally from Mexico, actually. But we've done a lot of research about how they came to the island and why. And mm-hmm. But maybe that's another question. <laughs> I mean, I was kind of feeling like, 
it was more SOS. It like, is SOS, Cochichumbas in English, it would be that, yes. Yeah. So it's like a, you know, a last gasp of, of, of a cry from these like endangered plants that are obviously quite clearly and devastatingly dying all over the island. I mean, there's not literally a single corner that I've witnessed that, um, that I mean, I saw maybe like two healthy plants on the drive here, but I, I haven't seen any for ages. It's really quite sad. Yeah, so this, uh, the plague of this particular kind of cochineal, um, there are two kinds of cochineal in Spain. One is called Dactylopius cocus, which is um, the kind of cochineal that is used to cultivate. Um, it's cultivated for their dye, actually, in Mexico, also in the Canary Islands. And it can live in balance with, with the prickly pear cactus. But the kind we have here causing this plague is the Dactylopius opuntiae. And in one to two years, it can, will just kill the cactus completely. It, it cannot... Uh, coexist together. Um, it arrived to the Balearic Islands around 2017, 2018. And as you said, the only ones that are still looking good, it's because people are caring for their cactus, cleaning it regularly. And that is what we're trying to inspire as well. I mean, you say it came in 2017, but where did it come from? Or how do you know a little bit about the history of the, uh, of the arrival of the, of the species? Of this plague? Well, we've been making research and it um, appears in press uh, some years before in other points of Spain. Nobody really knows why it came, but it's probably brought from America, some Mexico or somewhere, mm -hmm. to control maybe the, the actual prickly pear cactus, because in some places they consider it like it, it advances too much and they don't want they want it sort of to you know like these things that we do human beings like some you know we want to control this and then pff, it all gets out of control mm. so that is probably the reason but it, there's no scientific evidence of where it actually came and why it's very interesting because obviously on episode one we had uh, Jason Watson Todd of Terra Vita talking about indigenous plants and this kind of globalized idea of you know people importing olive trees and snakes coming with them and uh, you know there has to be obviously a point in history where these things arrived and and it would be very interesting I guess at some point um, to pinpoint or to have some data about where they where they actually came from but you know so what what action are you guys obviously taking apart from the artist? Um, collective one like in terms of like as you say you're trying to inspire people to to clean them right so on, a, on an artistic level we have we have many practices we are exploring from using the dye to looking at it historically about when did the the chumbera arrive to Spain and it actually arrived because um, at a certain point in time the cochineal was very valuable as a red dye before artificial dyes existed. So that's why, they're, that, that's why they're even here in Spain in the first place. But So we're exploring it from many aspects. And then we're also organizing different events. Uh, we're talking now to Juntos Farm about doing an event there to create awareness. Um, also, we're working with the Asociación Cultural Vit Turcosta of Estudi Turcosta in Jesus. We're going to be doing an event in the springtime there. So doing workshops, cleaning, teaching people how to clean their... They're chumbera, so you know everyone can do this in their house actually. And if everyone did it, wow, we would have a, a resurgence of the plant. I remember speaking to you just a few short weeks ago about cleaning mine, and I didn't quite get round to it. And it is already dead. I'm absolutely heartbroken. It's on my doorstep, and every time I step outside my front door, it's 
it's just I'm faced with this I kind of failed kind of like visual aesthetic and I, I feel a bit guilty really no I mean the aesthetic, aesthetic is horrible but the plant has a, a lot of resilience which is it gives a lot of hope you can trim it for that you know cut it from from if it's if it looks really bad you just cut it and you see how it has um, leaves will come probably new leaves because the the roots are okay. So in many cases, it uh, it comes back to life. Mm -hmm. And also, if you have some green leaves on a very bad, um, dead-looking part, you can also try to cut them and put them in soil. And sometimes they also become mm -hmm. a, a new plant. So that is this plant is very strong. It's so don't worry. Maybe you still <laughs> can look after it, and and it will it will be back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There is hope. Maybe yeah, I need to get you over to my house to, to fix it for me. For sure. I really wouldn't know where to start. And I think a lot of people probably feel like that when they see these kind of disaster zones. Like, you know, and, and some of them, there's just such enormous patches. Obviously, they are indigenous plants to Ibiza. And that's the tragedy of it all, really, because I think, you know, Ebithenko people put them or built specific kind of um, huge arrays of them very close to the house. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the, sure. the plant? So actually, I would just correct you, it's not really indigenous to the island. It does come from the Americas, from the Americas, but about 400 years ago, right? So it has become a really important part of the landscape and of the, the cultural heritage of, of the island. So yes, as you said, people used to plant them as fences. They used to eat the fruits. They would give the, the leaves or the paddles as food to the animals. Also, it, they help um, to avoid erosion. So it really has become a part of people's lives for hundreds of years. So even though it is not actually indigenous, it has become a part of things. Um, there's a phrase we just learned, um, which is botanical memory. And this talks about um, the emotional connection that people have with plants, with, with this, that these elements of the landscape. And this is what we're trying to preserve as well. You know, um, I have an 85-year-old neighbor, and she... You know, she talks about for generations they've been, they've had a connection, a relationship with this plant, but now they're now they're gone. Um, so, where they're going, there is still hope, as yeah. we said. I think what I meant by that was um, that I had read the Ebithenko old houses, or, or particularly actually when I had a, a very old finca in in San Vicente when I first arrived that they built these or they installed these, you know, mini fields of, of cactus plants to suck up the sewerage um, because that's one of the functions that they used to perform was to, obviously the, there was no indoor toilets and it was something that they used to basically um, digest, I think, the, mm. the, the kind of latrine that was always very close to the house. That's just something I read. I don't know if you know anything about yeah, that. Yeah, you don't yeah. have to talk about that, the yeah, sewerage yeah. on the podcast, but you know, I might encourage you. <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, that was one of the uses, yeah, which is no longer needed. But what I would like to talk about is that it's, um, it's a local mm, ecological resource for all this regenerative movement in the island. I think it should be addressed because it really has incredible fruits that could be eaten that have been eaten always it doesn't need any water no no irrigation it, it grows by itself when it's in good condition and also in mexico people eat the leaves so we could also start to introduce it in restaurants you know it's really sustainable local 
resource. So not not only the traditional um, Ibithenkos are wanting to get this back. I think it's wonderful for everybody in, on the island. Mm. But there is also uh, a thing in in Spain. This this plant is not catalogued uh, officially as uh, an indigenous plant because it was brought over 400 years ago, which is a bit... Well, in Portugal, for example, it is considered uh, a local plant, but here not officially, okay? So the official organisms of environmental organisms don't look after it. So this has to be like something that comes from citizens, from mm. personal associations and and groups like that to look after it, or everybody who has their own plant at home or near or neighbor, because that is a problem that we have here, that the institutions don't look after it, and wh that's one of the reasons why it's in a bit abandoned. Mm -hmm. And I think also the whole countryside and the land has been quite abandoned for several generations, you know, and now there is more c uh, consciousness about that, more awareness. So I think it should be part of this awareness. This, this plant that has always been part of our landscape, as Liz has mentioned. And um, people feel very connected to it, but don't know how to clean it. And it's not that difficult. I mean, it's just a little bit of a special soap or even dishwashing soap. When, if you reduce it with water and then with good gloves and you just go and, and clean the white stuff off, or if you have pressure with water, and you can clean it from time to time. It will come back because the plague is there. But, you know, maybe every two months you, you put up some water on it and if you want, you cut off the, the, the leaves that are really dead and, and you get your plant back. Mm. And then you can get the, the, these figs that are amazing taste. Talk to us about the collective. Obviously, there's 12 of you and you all have different disciplines of artistry. Like, What's the plan in terms of the creative processes that you're going to bring together to demonstrate this uh, dying breed? Yeah, well, like you said, there's a great variety. So we are several, several artists who are doing weaving with natural dyes. Some of us, as Eliana is doing, is painting with the actual cochineal directly um, onto paper. Um, I have been dyeing, uh, using it also as dye, this dress I'm wearing is dyed with the cochineal from Ibiza. Um, we also have, uh, for example, a writer in the group. We have someone who used to be a lawyer uh, who lives in Madrid, but she's, I kind of consider her our secret weapon because she's the one really doing this incredible research, um, looking into government, government, um, you know, obscure government papers trying to find out where did this come from what is the species all of these things um, so yeah we're, we're really exploring right because the the dye has never really been as far as we know explored in Ibiza and also this particular um, variety of cochineal as I said is not the one cultivated for dye so we I think are I don't know, maybe the first ones exploring the dye from this particular kind of cochineal and seeing what it can give us. And for example, it doesn't give a bright red as the other kind does, but it gives this lo lovely lavender color. So we are, um, yeah, exploring different ways to use it. And you create that 
lavender color with with no added extras it's just that's it in a bucket with some water well you you have to make a dye bath there's a bit of process as any uh dyeing would be but um but yeah there, there's no other colors added this this is the interesting color. Yeah. and and so there's going to be paintings and you're going to obviously collage. use it for fashion yes fashion collage uh gastronomic um new plates and possibilities uh, photography, yeah, different, uh, different people, different women. Actually, we all women. It just organically grew like this, and and we like it now. The core of the group. Then everybody is welcome for sure. But um, very different manifestations of of how we all get inspired by either the the insect or the plant. It has to be around this relationship. Mm. But all kind of materials, maybe also some pottery. I don't know. We'll we'll see how everything is, develops. I mean, you say that you are activists. What action are you taking? Like apart from obviously the artistry and the raising awareness, like what would you like to see as a result of the work that you guys are, are, are forming a collective to create? I mean, obviously, we would love to see people taking care of their own plant. Uh, as much as possible um, so the awareness is really the main the, the main kind of you know creating awareness is is, is the main action um, that we can take on the activist side I think um, because many people many um, payesas they don't actually know how to clean the cactus they haven't been taught that so um, but these are these are some of these um, practices. The cleaning with the potassium soap, exa- uh, for example, these are things that have been taught to us by some payeses, some country people here, um, as well as the casita verde. They say they have completely controlled their cochineal of all of their chumberas there um, with this technique. Um, so we think it's wonderful, and we want to spread that word. We are organizing workshops with schools so that also mm, teenagers maybe because for k- smaller kids maybe it's a bit more tricky with uh, you have to be careful with gloves and not to hurt yourself but uh, with teenagers and yeah we like to do very practical workshops also mm. about the issue I think well education is is key for sure and I think you know uh, to create a whole school full of little activists who are probably more yeah time free in some ways to go out and um you know to do that cleaning process is a is a wonderful thing so just lastly then in terms of the cleaning like how how do you clean them what is the process for that so there's a few different techniques um one is just to clean it with uh for example a rag uh, with um, you can even just use water if you have nothing better, mm-hmm. you know. But some people use dish soap. Um, some people use this potassium soap, and that will help protect it. So it's just trying to clean off the white stuff as much as you possibly can. Um, if you have a very large one that you can't really do by hand, which many people do, um, as she said, you can use um, water pressure, like a karcher or something, to spray it down onto the ground. Now. Cochineal does spread by wind, for example. So um, if it's just falling on the ground, it will reinfect, but so will they all. It, it, they fly on the wind. So um, you just have to do this occasionally. And, um, yeah, this, this, this is the way. We have to be <laughs> involved. So yeah. fascinating. They can just fly on the wind, and then even like when they're on the ground, they come back. It just looks like a sort of 
yeah, just like a crusty, yeah, flaky, almost mm. like toothpaste. Mm. Yeah. Or you can scrape it off and then you kill it mm. or by boiling it or by crushing it and then it won't go back. But, um, yeah, I would like to say also that one of the ways that we're showing how to do this is through Instagram. We have an Instagram called SOS Cochichumbas. And there, there are all the methods and videos of... We, we've created like a video chain where people are cleaning it and then pass it on to somebody else and somebody else cleans it and cleans the plant. So you can read and see the pictures on Instagram and follow us and then also know about the days that we, we will have actions, we will do performances cleaning it and, and uh, we can keep in touch and um, support if you want this project. <laughs> well, we will put a link in the episode show notes. I think that brings us not only to a close, but thank you so, so much for your uh, time and your efforts to, to you know, rally, rally the troops and get people to, to do something. Thank you so much for inviting us and for supporting the Chumberas of the island. <laughs> yes, thank you so much, Joe, for this opportunity. We hope that many people will, will be aware and, and look after this amazing plant we can recover for our landscape. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you, ladies. Thank you.